The Jerusalem Channel is made possible by viewer support. Thanks for watching. As the locals will tell you, living here in Jerusalem is rather expensive. The joke here is, how do you make a small fortune in Israel? The answer is, you come here with a large fortune. There are many financial challenges to having a ministry here. And if you're being blessed by the ministry and the media outreach of the Jerusalem Channel, we'd like to ask you to help support us to make Jerusalem Channel going and growing. At our website, you'll find a link to make a monthly or a one-time donation. The Jerusalem Channel, it's the next best thing to being here. I'm frequently asked, how can I find a church that pleases God? It's scripturally important to discover a body of believers where the authority of the biblical doctrine of the apostles is respected, where both the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament are studied, and where worship is in spirit and in truth. Depending upon where you live, it's not always easy to find a congregation that's alive to the Lord. Finding the right church is an issue that many believers grapple with, so I hope to share some insights and encouragement with you today. Shalom, I'm Christine Darg. Are you looking for a good church to attend? So many believers aren't even going to a church these days because they don't feel at home in churches that tolerate sin and dishonor the Word of God. And troublesome replacement theology against the Jews and Israel is another reason why many Bible believers are uncomfortable in churches that never talk about Israel except to claim all of Israel's promises. Well, we all know there's no perfect church if you or I attend it, but even if a church is scripturally off base, perhaps you're still hanging in there because of the admonition in Hebrews 10:25, not to forsake assembling together as some are in the habit of doing. And that verse encourages us to have fellowship and all the more as we see the day of the Lord's return approaching. So you may have decided that being a part of even a very flawed church is better than no church attendance at all. However, one of the reasons why the concept of Revelation TV's Church Without Walls is so popular is that a media ministry meets a great need in this hour for teaching and a sense of belonging to a fellowship with like-minded believers. Rather than dutifully attending an apostate church just for the sake of church attendance. When the Lord said, I will build my church, primarily he envisioned worldwide local bodies of believers knitted and growing up together with mutual support and love. He did not envision divisions and denominations. The Lord prayed for unity in his church, one body, the one new man of Jew and Gentile together. Because we're living in the last days of church history, theologians often point out that our age corresponds to the last 
of the seven prototype churches mentioned in the book of Revelation in chapters 2 and 3. And this is the age of the seventh and last church, the Laodicean church that was characterized by Jesus as being lukewarm, neither hot or cold. In his letter to the Laodiceans, the Lord said their lukewarm attitude made him sick. They were Christians in name only. Now I'm wondering, if the Lord sent a letter to the church that you're attending, how do you imagine He might evaluate your church? Would He commend your church's love of the Word of God? Or would He rebuke your church's neglect of this Word of God? Would He address your congregation's endurance under trials? Or would He rebuke you for not standing up for anything? Would he commend your church for its discernment of false prophets and its commitment to biblical truth? Or would he send a rebuke? Well, theologians assure us that the seven churches addressed in Revelation cover all the bases of congregations through the ages. And by studying these churches, we can help to determine if we're supporting congregations that the Lord would rebuke or commend. And I suppose we can take some comfort if we think we're attending a weak church, that even within some of the churches that the Lord rebuked in Revelation 2 and 3, He did find among them a few real believers and overcomers. But Jesus had zero commendation for the Laodicean church. Among those seven churches in Asia Minor, sadly, five of the seven were highly disappointing to the Lord. For example, he said the church in Ephesus had deserted its first love. Pergamos was threatened with judgment because it was tolerating sin. Thyatira was compromising with evil to the degree that sin was being advocated even within the church. Does that sound familiar to today? Well, of course it does. If you can't find an on-fire church that refuses to compromise with the sins of our culture, it's very legitimate biblically to start a church in your own home. Because after all, Jesus said, where two or three meet together, he will be there with us. And as you study the New Testament, you realize that believers did not meet in grand cathedrals. They worshiped as they broke bread together from house to house. We see, for example, in Romans chapter 16 and in 1 Corinthians 16 that the husband and wife team of Aquila and Priscilla hosted meetings in their home. And Lydia of Tyratira, a seller of purple, was living in Philippi when she met the Apostle Paul and his companions, and they began a church in her house. While Paul always made it his method to preach in the synagogues, he also preached in the open air, in marketplaces, and in homes. But please note that Jesus didn't say in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my synagogue. He said, I will build my church. So now the word church comes from the Greek word ecclesia, which means a called out group, an assembly, a congregation. Therefore, Jesus was promising to create his own group of chosen people called out by him. 
The question is, have you been called by the Lord? I know I have, and we need to know. Lord, let your calling be sure in each of our lives. So the church is not a building, it's invisible, a worldwide group of born-again believers who are called out by the Lord to be part of one body with Messiah as the head of the body. St. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, said, Now you are the body of Christ, and members in particular. To the Ephesians, he wrote, There is one body and one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Today, the many denominations scattered across the earth are contrary to what the Bible teaches. Denominationalism contradicts the prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17 when he prayed intensely for unity among his followers. And in his epistle to Corinth, Paul found it necessary to command that there be no divisions among you. This was because the Corinthian believers were contentious. They were breaking up into parties and naming their parties after Paul, or they were saying, I'm of the preacher Apollos, or I'm of Cephas, that is, the Apostle Peter. Sounds like a lot of religious sectarianism that goes on today, doesn't it? Paul realized he was dealing with babes in the Lord who were carnal, worldly. Carnality was the root of their envy, their strife, and divisions. Conditions today are not really much different. Where division exists, spiritual immaturity is often a major cause of the problem. But Jesus died to break down the wall of division. He suffered as God's sacrificial lamb to reconcile us to God in one body. Jesus knew the paramount importance of unity among his disciples and that unity would be the proof and hallmark that he was sent by God. So in John 17, 21, the night before he went to the cross to make atonement, Jesus prayed that we might all be one so that the world may believe that God sent him. We shouldn't be surprised when unbelievers are slow to receive the gospel coming from a divided and fractured church. Denominationalism is the cloak that gives support to many cults masquerading as Christianity. False Christian cults use religious division in order to control people to follow their organizations. But Martin Luther, one of the leaders of the Reformation, wrote, I ask that men make no reference to my name and that they not call themselves Lutherans, he said, but rather Christians. This is because Luther said, my doctrine is not mine, nor have I been crucified for anyone. Luther also pointed out that in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul wouldn't allow believers to call themselves after Paul or Peter. Luther claimed his name was worthless, and he wrote, No, no, my dear friends, let's abolish all party names and call ourselves Christians after him whose doctrine we have. Well, I also sometimes just call myself a believer, and sometimes I refer to myself as a Judeo-Christian to emphasize that I honor the Hebrew Bible 
as well as the New Testament, because without our Jewish roots, Christians can't fully grasp the scope of salvation, which began with the Jews and proceeded to Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus. I believe now we've begun to see the key role that the Jewish people, especially regathered Israel, will play in the last days. So it's simply dead wrong for churches to indulge in anti-Semitism. The religious leaders of Jesus' day rejected him, but so do all kinds of people all the time. Yet God continues to love Israel and keep covenant with Israel, and God has a plan to redeem Israel. Even now, he's building his church made up of Jew and Gentile together. And those who bless Israel, this word of God promises are blessed, but those who curse Israel are definitely cursed. England's John Wesley was another great revivalist, and his followers are called Wesleyans or Methodists. Yet Wesley prayed like Luther, would to God that all party names that have divided the Christian world were forgotten and that the very name Methodist might never be mentioned again, but be buried in eternal oblivion. That's Wesley's own words. Even the prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, said, I hope that the Baptist denomination name will soon perish, but let Christ's name last forever. So when seeking an authentic New Testament church, it's wise to examine the names of churches because names will reveal a lot, whether the church is blatantly denominationalism or whether it's a trendy user-friendly church or hopefully a scriptural model. There's really no one scriptural name for the Lord's church. The expressions Church of God and Churches of Christ are commonly used in the epistles of Paul. Of course, the name of a church is not a sure guide. There are reportedly over 200 separate denominations that use the title Church of God. Well, other terms in the New Testament are fellowship, the way, the body of Christ, and kingdom of God. The use of scriptural names for churches instead of a humanly conceived name would reveal a desire to honor the Bible over the traditions of men or over a saint or a particular doctrine. But the most important thing we must do when looking for a suitable church is to examine the message that's being preached. Do they preach the gospel? You see, the Lord calls us through the preaching of the gospel. Paul also said that it's through the apparent foolishness of preaching that people are actually saved. As we heed the gospel message, the Lord calls us out and adds us to his body, his church. Can you see, therefore, why it's so important that the gospel be preached and not changed or diluted in any way? Because life and death are at stake. By changing either the facts or commands of the gospel, people won't be saved and the Lord won't be able to add souls to his church. If the gospel message is neglected or distorted in a church, you may meet some interesting people, but they'll be unsaved people. They may call themselves Christians or believers, but they may not be the people of God. So you must be able to discern what's being preached. It's only the Lord who truly makes individuals into the people of God when they properly respond to the call of the gospel. 
So it's vital that a church teach the pure and simple gospel, that Messiah was born of a virgin, he descended from King David, Christ crucified as the Lamb of God for the sins of the world. He died, he was buried, he was raised from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is coming again to judge the living and the dead as King of kings and Lord of lords. A careful study of the book of Acts and the epistles in the New Testament reveals a picture of the kind of church a believer should join. An important key is this. Do the leaders continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine? Because according to Acts 3.42, the early churches continued steadfastly in the doctrines of the apostles. What were these? These included the Lord's Supper, singing hymns and psalms, engaging in prayer, Bible study, preaching, giving offerings, baptisms, hospitality, taking care of widows and orphans. Their assemblies sought to provoke one another to love in good works, to do exploits. They were engaged in equipping the saints for ministry and spreading the gospel by sending out evangelists. They met the needs of the saints as problems arose. And they appointed elders known as bishops, pastors, presbyters, shepherds, who were qualified to oversee and tend to the local congregations. And they appointed deacons and deaconesses qualified to serve the local congregations. They honored their Hebraic roots, but they didn't insist that Gentiles convert to Judaism. In Acts chapter 15, at the Jerusalem Council, the Apostles' Doctrine was solidified for all generations in the church. And how did this happen? You see, certain people who claimed to be followers of Jesus came down from Judea to the church at Antioch. And they were teaching the believers that unless they were circumcised, according to the law of Moses, they couldn't be saved. The dispute brought the apostles Paul and Barnabas into sharp debate with the visitors from Jerusalem. So Paul, Barnabas, and some other believers were sent to Jerusalem to settle the dispute. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and by the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had been doing through them among the Gentiles. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees insisted the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. So the apostles and elders met to solve this question. And after much discussion, Peter stood up and said, Brothers, you know that some time ago God sent me to the Gentiles, and they heard me preach the gospel message, and they believed. And God, who knows the heart, accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he had given the Holy Spirit to us Jews. Peter said, God didn't discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, Peter asked, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, Peter said, we believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we're saved. 
just as they are. So James, the brother of the Lord, ruled. He made a ruling in Acts 15, 19. He said, it's my judgment that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols. They must abstain from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For James said, the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogue on the Sabbath. So the Jerusalem Council sent a letter from the apostles and elders to the Gentile believers, saying, we've heard that some went out from us without our authorization, and they disturbed you, they troubled your minds. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you to confirm by word of mouth what we are in fact writing. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. For requirements, you are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Well, amen. Today, Church of God, we must continue in the apostles' doctrines and not overburden believers with requirements to keep the ceremonial Jewish law. For we are saved by grace through faith, and this is not due to ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any of us should boast. So we proclaim the simple gospel of Jesus and we abide in the apostles' doctrine. And when we do that, we won't be participating in some new denomination, but we'll be members of the Lord's authentic, universal church. The church began after the Lord's crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension to heaven on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And those individuals who were willing to repent and to express their faith in Jesus were called out from the crowds. Those who gladly responded in faith, repentance, and baptism were added to the church. Acts 2.47 says, And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So this called out assembly was created when the gospel was proclaimed and as people responded to the gospel. And the church spread like a fire from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Groups of saved people continue to meet together and become known as a church in a local sense, in contrast to the universal church, which consists of those saved individuals throughout the world and throughout church history. So please understand and remember that by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, the Lord calls us into his church through the hearing of the gospel. And the Lord is the one who does the adding. As the Apostle Peter explained in his sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2.38, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus the Messiah for forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And in the next verse, Peter said, For the promise is for you and for your children and for all those who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. 
So now today, we are the ones who were far off, yet the promise to be added to the Lord's church is just as valid today for us as for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. That means we'll receive the same blessings, the same Holy Spirit, as did the 3,000 souls who believed in Jesus nearly 2,000 years ago on the day of Pentecost. As we believe and as we call on the name of the Lord, we will receive the free, unmerited gift of salvation. So let's continue to follow the biblical pattern of the first believers. Let's continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. They didn't have to join a religious organization because Jesus himself added them to his church. But when people from every conceivable background come to a saving knowledge of the Lord, we can expect some differences and frictions. But the Bible gives guidelines for maintaining the unity that Jesus prayed that we would demonstrate to the world. Paul gave us some guidelines. In Ephesians chapter 4, he taught the virtue of lowliness, to hold a humble opinion of oneself. He also advocated gentleness, which is certainly conducive for maintaining unity. Gentleness is not weakness, but it's like meekness power under control. Maintaining unity is not possible unless members of the body are willing to endure each other's imperfections. So Paul also taught long-suffering. We are to bear with one another in love. Bearing means to endure. And what makes endurance possible is love. Love which suffers long and isn't provoked. Indeed, love is the tie that binds all virtues together to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. To the church at Philippi, Paul said, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit because self-centered attitudes destroy unity. We must strive to rid ourselves of an inflated ego. As Paul said, let each esteem others better than himself and look out for the interests of others. To the churches at Galatia and Corinth, Paul made it clear that we should be willing even to forego our liberties in Messiah if our restraint can keep a weak brother from stumbling. To the church at Rome, Paul said the spiritually strong should be willing to bear with the scruples of the weak. But the weak in faith must be careful not to condemn those whom God has received. Who are you, Paul asks, to judge God's servant? And in Romans chapter 11, Paul admonished the church not to be high-minded toward the Jews. He said, if the church fails, God can cut off the church just as he temporarily cut off the Jews. So we're to maintain humility and believe that all of Israel shall be saved for their beloved for the sake of the fathers. Now in closing today, I ask, do you want to be a member of the Lord's church that we read about in the New Testament? If your answer is a resounding yes, according to Acts 2.38, you must repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus the Messiah for the remission of sins. And then you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit 
the Lord himself will add you to his universal church. And I pray that you'll heed his loving call. And in the meantime, let's stay connected through the social media. And we also invite you to visit our website at exploits.tv where you can watch any of our videos 24-7 and where you can sign up for our free color magazine, Exploits. Also, you can download our free Jerusalem Channel app for your tablets or phones. And so until next time, as a watchman upon these walls, always contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem, I'm Christine Dark. Shalom and Maranatha.